Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. Edward Kimball was concerned about one of his young Sunday school students who worked at a shoe store in town. One day, Kimball visited him at the store, found the student in the back stocking shoes, and led him to Christ there and then. Dwight L. Moody eventually left the shoe store to become one of the greatest preachers and evangelists of all time. Moody, whose international speaking took him to the British Isles, preached in a little chapel, pastored by a young man with the imposing name of Frederick Broverton Mayer. In his sermon, Moody told an emotionally charged story about a Sunday school teacher he had known in Chicago, who personally went to every student in his class and led every one of them to Christ. That message changed Pastor Mayer's entire ministry, inspiring him to become an evangelist like Moody. Over the years, Mayer went to America several times to preach. Once in Northfield, Massachusetts, a confused young preacher sitting in the back row heard Mayer say, If you're not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? Well, that remark led J. Wilbur Chapman to respond to the call of God in his life. Chapman went on to become one of the most effective evangelists of his time. A volunteer by the name of Billy Sunday helped set up his crusades and learned how to preach by watching Chapman. Sunday eventually took over Chapman's ministry, becoming one of the most dynamic evangelists of the 20th century. In the great arenas of the nation, Billy Sunday's preaching turned thousands of people to Christ. Inspired by a 1924 Billy Sunday crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina, a committee of Christians there dedicated themselves to reaching that city for Christ. The committee invited the evangelist Mordecai Ham to hold a series of evangelistic meetings in 1932. A lanky 16-year-old sat in a huge crowd one evening, spellbound by the message of the white-haired preacher, who seemed to be shouting and waving his lone finger at him. Night after night, the teenager attended, and finally went forward to give his life to Christ. The teenager's name was Billy Graham, the man who has undoubtedly communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ to more people than any other man in history. Remember, though, how the sequence of events started. A nobody named Kimball, concerned for one of his students, visited him at a shoe store, and in doing that, he changed the world. Millions of people have been affected by his decision to go to that shoe store and share the gospel with one person, and millions more will continue to feel the impact of it. I ask you, can anything like that happen today? Well, you bet it can. God wants to use you and me to change the world. Jesus said that his mission was to seek and save the lost. And what greater mandate could he leave his followers than to continue his legacy? What do you think it is that causes some Christians to be disinterested in this great commission? Hello and welcome to our GCS podcast with Tony Anthony. While there are many good things that a church can do in this world, God has assigned a specific missional priority to the church for reaching the lost. The church, of course, as the koinonia or community of faith, is to be involved in caring for the homeless, serving the disadvantaged, and meeting needs of those in distress. But these activities are Christian duties that all believers do in the regular course of life. They are not the missional priority of the church. Let's join Tony 
as he looks at the mission of the church and how the people of God can embrace a missionary identity. All in the balance. Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. We read that in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And what greater mandate could he leave his followers than to continue his legacy? The scriptures that speak most clearly of this are undoubtedly those that we've come to know as the Great Commission. Yet everywhere, the Gospels sing out of Jesus' intention for his people. Meditate on Jesus' prayer in John 17. You've got those verses from 20 to 26. And just embrace just a glimpse of Christ's love for us and his longing for unity among believers. It says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. You see, here he declares, and I find it so easy to imagine the face of God beaming down at his son at this point. You know, such tenderness, such passion. What honour is ours? So if this is our clear mandate. It seems to me that we urgently need to examine first our own priorities. And then especially those of the wider body of the church. In many of our churches, every ministry has been given equal priority. And while it's true that every ministry in a local church ought to have equal value, Biblically speaking, not every ministry ought to have equal priority. Imagine you're called to the bedside of a dying person. You know they only have a very short time left on this earth. You've discovered that they've never fully heard the gospel and therefore they're not saved. So what do you do? Do you sit with them and keep them company, perhaps helping them remember the good years? Do you plump their pillows, help them drink and try to make their last hours as physically comfortable as possible? Do you just go off and pray for them? Take a look at Jesus' prayer, as reported in John 17. This is a tremendously tender passage where Jesus places his friends before his father. First, he prays for his disciples, then for all believers. But note his words in verse 20. My prayer is not for them, the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. You know, back in verse 18, Jesus had spoken of the mission of his followers to go out into the world. He was confident that they would spread the gospel. So he prays here for those who would believe as a result of their work. It seems that all future believers are included in this prayer. So go back with our dying friend. I've got to highlight again in that verse 20 and pray that he or she might believe you know, through the message. Surely then this message must be given. My priority must be to pray, of course. What could have more value than speaking directly to our creator God on behalf of this person? But in doing so, I must share the gospel with them so that they have the opportunity to respond, hopefully under the conviction of the Holy Spirit by the power of prayer. Yes, I must pray. Pray at all times and in all things without ceasing, we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. But I must also proclaim the gospel. For my dying friend, it might be the only time he or she would ever have heard the good news of eternity. With what urgency, with what desperation, what love must I share it? And it's not just me, an overexcited evangelist, right, <laughs> who makes this claim. You know, respected theologians from across denominations of the Christian church make this same assertion. Dr. John Stott compares the priorities of evangelism and social action, asserting our first duty is to communicate the gospel. 
He writes, the church's mission of sacrificial service includes both evangelistic and social action, so that normally the church does not have to choose between the two. But if the choice has to be made, then evangelism is primary, he says. Many others agree with Stott. You know, distinguished professor of theology Millard Erickson notes that the one topic emphasised in both accounts of Jesus' last words to his disciples is evangelism. You know, Erickson expounds more on these passages and concludes that Jesus appeared to regard evangelism as the very reason for the disciples' being. Dr. Derek Prince, another theologian, goes so far as speaking of the supreme purpose, the chief duty, he says, the main responsibility, the supreme task of presenting the gospel, claiming that every other duty and activity of the church must be secondary and subsidiary. Missionary statesman Oswald J. Smith commented in Mark chapter 13, verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached in all the nations. Well, why did Jesus use the word first? He stated that the gospel must first be proclaimed among the nations. He wanted to say that before we did anything else, we were to evangelize the world. You know, as I travel from church to church to conference to seminar to workshop, I often perceive a certain reaction at this point of my teaching. Sometimes as though there's an awakening, as if the truth and consequence of Jesus' words is just beginning to dawn. Others I see begin to bristle, and perhaps understandably so. After all, surely there's much preparation, much legwork to be done before we can stand before a person and proclaim the gospel, surely. I mean, look at Jesus himself. He met people at their point of need. He healed. He showed them love, friendship, acceptance. Surely this is the role of the church, is it not? All such assertions are valid, but again I turn to William Booth. You remember our Salvation Army friend? For a perspective on the balance between social action and saving souls. Booth questions the worth in taking a man out of the slums, healing his body, giving him decent clothes, providing him a home in the country, and then letting him die and go to hell. No one can argue with William Booth did not value social action. The legacy of the Salvation Army speaks for itself. However, Booth recognised the sheer folly of putting all one's zeal into comforting the body whilst ignoring the eternal soul. Dr K.P. Yohannan, Indian missionary to Asia, made similar observations regarding the church's error in putting social programmes before gospel proclamation. He says this, I'm not trying to minimise the social and material needs of the Asian nations, but it's important to re-emphasise that Asia's basic problem is a spiritual one. Yohannan is definite in his insight into the war in the heavenlies, again quoting from Ephesians 6 verse 12, and the way it manifests itself here on earth. He points out that when Western media focuses entirely on problems of hunger, that's why we see lots of pictures of starving children on television, it becomes very difficult for people in the West not to get the false impression that hunger must be the biggest problem. But Yohannan asks the question, what causes the hunger? He goes on to say, Asian Christians know the horrible conditions are only symptoms of the real problem, which is spiritual bondage. The single most important social reform that can be brought to Asia is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The trouble with the social gospel, even when it's closed with religious garb and operating within Christian institutions, is that it seeks to fight what is basically spiritual warfare with weapons of the flesh. He says a spiritual battle fought with spiritual weapons will produce eternal victories. This is why we we insist upon restoring a right balance to gospel outreach. The accents must first and always be on evangelism and discipleship. 
Interestingly, cynics might struggle with this emphasis on the spiritual realm. Surely it's common sense that the problem of hunger and poverty in this world is due to mismanagement of the earth's resources and exploitation of the poor and vulnerable, maybe? You know, where's the spiritual battle in that? Well, surely the answer is obvious. Firstly, we only have to consider who and what is behind greed and drive for power in this world. But there are also far more obvious manifestations of the spiritual realm at work. Let's consider why one of India's own statesmen declared, India's problems will never cease until her religion changes. Now, listen to this. According to those who believe in reincarnation, did you know the rats must be protected as a likely recipient for a reincarnated soul on its way up the ladder of spiritual evolution to nirvana? Now, the result of this is that 20% of India's food grain every year is eaten or spoiled by rats, which is, of course, terrible. But one survey in a wheat-growing district of Hapur in North India revealed an average of about 10 rats per house and a large-scale effort of extermination well, they were thwarted by religious outcry. And one of the smallest harvests of cereals in India, uh, it revealed that the 20% loss in rats amounted to 26.8 million tonnes of grain. Now, can you picture that amount of grain? I mean, imagine a train of container cars, each car holding about 82 metric tonnes. That means your train would need to contain 327,000 cars, and that would stretch approximately 3,000 or so miles. You know, that's longer than the distance from New York to Los Angeles. <laughs> you know, 3,000 miles of railway wagons full of wheat are lost every year while people are starving. And why? Because of a false religion idea. Atheists often throw out the question, how can a loving God, if he exists, and how does he even in starvation? Well, look at this case. It's not God allowing anything. It's people who are allowing fellow human beings to suffer in this way. There is food in the world. It's in that train. (laughs) How many other spiritual runaway trains are there that we don't even know about? In a similar way, India's so-called sacred cows that you would have heard of, they're allowed to roam eating tons of food while nearby people go hungry. You know, um... In one Hindu community, uh, they were in uproar back in 2007 in the UK when the UK Health Authority in South Wales wanted to kill Shambo. Shambo was a sacred bull and they wanted to kill it because it was carrying tuberculosis. Now, Hindus were threatening to pour into the uh, area to make a human chain to protect this cow. Now, if I'm not mistaken, TB is a disease that is known to kill humans. And yet there was a campaign to save this animal that has TB because of a religious belief. How can a loving God allow disease, they ask? Well, sorry, not in this case. Yet again, this is an example where massive social problems, disease and starvation can occur because religion is sustaining that situation. No wonder then that Dr. Johannan speaks so strongly about the folly of putting social programmes before gospel proclamation. Johannan recognises that poverty, hunger, injustice and the like are symptoms Their cause is wrong thinking. The root of wrong thinking is false religion. False religion is a spiritual problem. To fight a spiritual problem, we must use spiritual weapons. And the greatest and most powerful spiritual weapon the Lord Jesus has given to us, it's the true gospel. Now, I'm not saying that if we find a starving person, we proclaim the gospel first and feed them later. I'm not saying that at all. Of course, we should meet their bodily need first. It's the most immediate thing that they've got to deal with. 
just as Jesus did. In all circumstances, we should be the Good Samaritan, no matter what the person costs. But at some stage, we must also be aware of that person's greater need. When the body is stable, we must then progress to the state of the soul. The issue, though, is always how we see people. C.S. Lewis is extensively quoted as claiming, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. When we look through these lenses, we begin to recognise why many scholars assert that the spreading of the gospel should be our supreme priority and our prime weapon. Let's not be mistaken here. The purpose of the church is clear. Jesus says, didn't he, love the Lord your God of all your heart and of all your soul and of all your mind and of all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There's no commandments greater than these. You find that in Mark chapter 12. Yes, this is our purpose, both as individual human beings and as corporate church. But if this is our purpose, then our priority has to be to fully live out this love. John chapter 15, we read from verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. This then means firstly, showing our love for God by obeying Jesus' commands to go spread the good news. And secondly, loving our neighbour by making as many attempts as possible to open up the way of eternal salvation for them. Think of it this way, perhaps. When we work for a company, we prioritise our actions. You know, at one time, Coca-Cola's mission statement was to put a bottle of Coca-Cola on the table of every household in the Western world. Well, if you work for the company, your purpose is Coca-Cola. But within your daily work life, you have different priorities. For example, depending on your job, you might put dealing with customers before dealing with your junk email. When we look at the Christian life, I would suggest that a biblical model dictates our purpose as to love God. This will be done and demonstrated in many ways and have many different facets. But according to scripture and a whole host of authorities from across denominations, it quite clearly seems that our priority should be to preach the gospel. The late Dr. Billy Graham summarises in this way, I am convinced that if the church went back to its main task of preaching the gospel and getting people converted to Christ, it would have a far greater impact on the social, moral and psychological needs of men than any other thing it could possibly do. You know, if you want to change a nation, we must change the people who make up that nation. And if you want to change the people who make up the nation, we need to change their hearts. If you want to change their hearts, we must plant the incorruptible seed of the gospel in every individual. If our purpose is to love, then our priority must be to preach the gospel. We hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, 
UK.